Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Happy Labor Day weekend. On today's program, I'll catch up with local theater artist Mark Pratt to talk about his trilogy of comic book industry-inspired plays, including the world premiere titled The Innocence of Seduction. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me for part one of their annual fall theater preview. Later in the show, I'll visit the Harris Theater as it prepares to celebrate its 20th anniversary with a special one-day festival. And I'll sit down with the Museum of Contemporary Art's Laura Page Kyber to learn more about the second-ever Chicago Performs. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture. An attempt to link comic books to juvenile delinquency in the mid-50s is the source material for City Lit Theater's world premiere, The Innocence of Seduction. The play is the second in a trilogy of works that dives into a series of real stories from the comic book industry. The Four Color Trilogy comes from Chicago-based theater artist Mark Pratt. He was inspired to start the project after attending Comic-Con in San Diego several years ago. I saw some panels about older comic book creators telling their stories, and I found it all very fascinating. Started doing some research and reading, and uh, came up with at least three really good stories, I thought. That's where it started. It's also basically been my, it was my COVID project. So, you know, we got into lockdown, and I was supposed to do a play, and the show got shut down, so I just decided to bang out these scripts. I recently caught up with Pratt at a coffee shop in the Uptown neighborhood. The first play in his trilogy, The Mark of Cain, premiered last September. It told the behind-the-scenes story of how Bob Kane took sole credit for the creation of the iconic Batman character. Pratt's new play, The Innocence of Seduction, explores an often-forgot piece of comic book history that involved congressional hearings and a major shift in the industry. The current show, The Innocence of Seduction, that really started from a, a panel about the juvenile delinquency hearings and Dr. Frederick Wortham and his book, The Seduction of the Innocent. Just started me down a path doing a lot of reading about that and about the comics companies that were affected by that and the creators that were affected by that. People today might not even know much about those hearings that took place, so I think it was 1954. Correct because of this book written by that psychiatrist. Congress starts these hearings that look at the link between comic books and juvenile delinquency. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, Wortham published this book, The Seduction of the Innocent, and uh, a book that has been, in recent years, fairly well debunked in terms of his quote-unquote research that he did. It seems like he started with a thesis and then found examples for it. He would make these claims about 80% of the kids who were in jail or in homes for juvenile delinquency were comic book readers. Uh, but there was, no, there was no control group because, you know, maybe normal kids who were growing up and living normal lives and not getting into trouble, maybe 100% of them were reading comic books. Right. But it really centered on uh, what had become very popular 
in the early 50s through EC Comics, uh, which was uh, entertaining comics, which was run by Max Gaines, who's a character in the show. And they became very, very, very popular doing crime and horror comics. Uh, probably the most famous title would be Tales from the Crypt, which of course became the TV show on HBO and, and that sort of stuff. So they were sort of the center of the entire controversy. It became so pervasive in the public that eventually a couple of politicians, one of whom who was planning a presidential run, uh, decided they wanted to have hearings on it and they were actually televised hearings. Uh, it was Senator Estes Kefauver who was a senator from Tennessee and he, uh, he had become very famous with his uh, hearings on organized crime and one of the ways that he had gotten a lot of attention for those was because they were actually televised. So when they did these juvenile delinquency hearings, they decided to televise those as well. These hearings take place, uh, I don't think I'm getting into spoiler territory, but essentially I guess one of the things that comes about is that the comic publishers decide that it would be better to self-regulate. Correct. Without getting too much into spoiler territory, Bill Gaines, the publisher of EC, was the sole comic book publisher to testify at those hearings and his testimony did not go well. And uh, after that, the, uh, the rest of the publishers formed an organization called the Comics Code Authority, which was a self-regulatory body and essentially a censorship board that had incredibly stringent rules about what was, was allowable and what wasn't. Uh, you know, some of the more silly things was that the word crime could not appear in a comic book title. So... And many of the rules uh, seem to be designed to harm EC Comics, if not outright put them out of business. So uh, one of their biggest titles was Crime Suspend Stories. And uh, they couldn't have the word terror in a comic. So Crypt of Terror, Vault of Terror was not going to fly anymore. Yeah, they basically just set up this regulatory board um, that did head off any actual legislation, but it became this de facto censorship board that existed unchanged into the 1970s and was extremely constraining and limiting on the kinds of stories that comics could really tell. You couldn't do vampires, so you couldn't do, like you couldn't make do a, an adaptation of Dracula, or no, uh, no satire, nothing that would uh, degrade any of the, the uh, principles of the society, or, you know, it was, it was a very stringent code, truly. Looking back then, did that then help? Because now today people just associate superheroes with comic books, so is that part of the reason? Yeah, I, th I think what's really interesting about this particular period was when you, you look at EC Comics, and I, I, I hate to speak about them to the, to the denial of any other publishers, but they were really the predominant publisher of the time. They had no superhero books. Um, and actually, by the early 50s, superhero comics had kind of died out. The only superhero characters that were published consistently from the 30s into the 60s or 70s were Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. All the other ones had ended their run in one way or another. But what, what's sort of interesting is that very shortly after the code went into effect, DC decided to start reviving their superhero characters. Specifically, they started with The Flash. For comic book fans, that's sort of the beginning of the Silver Age of comics when we see 
the revival of the superhero, which then led to you know Stan Lee and Marvel Comics and all of that sort of thing. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking to Chicago-based playwright and director Mark Pratt about his new play, The Innocence of Seduction. So in order to tell this story, you crafted a, a play that revolves around three characters that were impacted by these congressional hearings. Correct. There was a, a very popular artist by the name of Matt Baker who was black um, and is also apparently gay. And the only reason I say apparently is because uh, Matt Baker sadly did not live to live. He died in 1959, so we can't get his word on the subject, but several of his friends have indicated that. And then uh, another a female artist, a very young female artist by the name of Janice Valou, who was not particularly famous or well-known or successful, but she was working. And then also Bill Gaines as the publisher of EC. I think what's interesting about the show is that each one of those stories, to me, has a very different tone and a very different style. I think it's really interesting we talk about privilege. Bill Gaines, again, not to get anything away, manages to get through this whole thing fairly successfully, but Matt and Janice both end up having to struggle for work. Uh, Janice actually leaves the business because of all of this. She was so terrified of what could happen to her if people knew that she drew comic books. Uh, and Matt ended up like drawing, I think the last thing I looked at was like a, a handbook for uh, bowling leagues, you know, that kind of stuff, a lot of advertising stuff, and then he sadly passed away as well. Were those two artists stories that you were familiar with, or did you have to do some deep digging to find? Um, that I discovered both of those characters, uh, both of those people, through David Haju's incredibly good book uh, called The Ten Cent Plague, which is, if you have any interest in this era, is really the book to read. Um, and he wrote about both of them, and then I did some more research. Uh, for example, he never touches on, on uh, Matt's homosexuality. Um, I had to find that in a different book. Uh, there's a book uh, published by Tomorrow's Publications called Matt Baker, The Art of Glamour, that has a very long interview with one of his best friends that talk, he, where he talks about it. So, but yeah, it was through that book, The Ten Cent Plague, that I really learned about those two characters. Uh, Bill Gaines is sort of a folk hero in comic book circles. He's uh, sort of a patron saint of the uh, Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, if you're familiar with that, which is a, uh, is a nonprofit that helps comic book creators and uh, comic book shops that may deal with uh, First Amendment issues. They do pro bono legal work for them. So. Pratt believes this story is relevant to right now. He says while not directly aimed at comic books, there has been an increase in censorship efforts aimed at books. You know, what we've seen in Florida, what we've seen in Texas, Tennessee, you know, the school boards recently voted to remove Mouse, uh, Art Spiegelman's incredible, incredible graphic novel about the, the Holocaust. Uh, to remove those from their schools. You know, and much of it is centered around homosexuality now, but it was, it's, it, is, it is a very interesting time because this is all sort of happening again. And, uh, you know, the cries of, what about the children? And, you know, what is this doing to our kids? And, and the context of it is a little different, but 
if you come and see the show, uh, Wortham is a character in it, and most of his dialogue is either directly out of the book, The Seduction of an Innocent, or his, his actual testimony at the Senate hearings. So, and some of the claims he makes are pretty inflammatory. Right. I think I read, did he say something that, uh, or did he like liken comic books to Hitler? He certainly, he likened Superman to fascism, uh, the Ubermensch, you know, uh, that thing. The famous claim that he really had was that he, he called uh, Batman and Robin an obviously homosexual relationship and goes into great deal of detail about all of that. Again, I don't want to blow the show. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking back to you were writing these around the time of the pandemic, and certainly I guess we would we probably started to hear some things in the news about book banning, but it's really those calls for banning books have amplified in the past couple of years. I would love to say that I planned that, but that was that was uh, uh, sadly uh, a coincidence, just in terms of like I I think that that is a. a cyclical thing that happens in societies. Somebody is always going to find something that they think is making society go bad or or making kids go bad or 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 ruining the children or or what and and that becomes a scapegoat for a while and then sooner or later that that cycle turns but it seems like it always returns in one way or another, be it comic books or video games or cartoon shows or whatever it may be, um, it seems like it is a recurring theme in our society. And and I certainly knew that when I was writing these. Um, I did not at all expect for virtually the same thing to be happening. When we talk about the, the trilogy, so is there a thread connecting the, the three plays? The thread between the three plays is really just... Uh, uh, thematic. Uh, it is, they are completely self-contained stories about the history of comics. So the first one was about Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Uh, Bob Kane famously having uh, cut his partner Bill Finger out of the legacy of the creation of Batman. Um, and then this one being about the, 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 the Senate hearings and the specter of, of the censorship and the rise of the comic code and things like that. And then the third one is uh, going to be about uh, Stanley and Jack Kirby and the rise of Marvel Comics. So each one is pretty well contained. Sometimes characters cross over in various capacities, but nothing. No one should think that they have to have seen the first show to come and see the second show. There's no continuing plot lines or anything like that. That was Mark Pratt. His play, The Innocence of Seduction, is making its world premiere at City Lit Theater in Chicago. The production officially opens today and is running through October 8th. You can find more info at citylit.org. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the art section every Sunday morning on WDCB, thank you. 
Make sure to check out the program's website, theartssection.org. You can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links to go along with all the features you hear on the show. Go to theartssection.org. And if you ever want to reach out to me with a comment, question, or suggestion, you can email me at gzydic at wdcb.org or find me on Instagram or Twitter, now known as X. I use the handle on air Gary. Always looking for ideas, so feel free to, to shoot me a message. Autumn in New York. Why does it seem so inviting? And you are listening to the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. So it's hard to believe autumn is at our doorstep. Every year we try to do a fall theater preview. Carrie and Jonathan will talk about some of the productions they're most looking forward to seeing over the next couple of months. And we're actually going to divide it into two separate segments. So this week the focus will be on plays, and next week we'll look at some of the musicals and festivals that are taking place this fall. But before we get into those lists, I thought we could take stock of the the local theater scene. It's a good time to do a, a comparison since we do these fall season previews every year around this time. So does it feel like, as far as the number of productions, we're nearing what it was like pre-pandemic? I think close. Definitely close. I mean, I think one of the things to look at is, you know, there are some theaters that are still doing smaller cast productions and some that are maybe doing shorter runs than they have in the past. But in terms of the amount of theaters that are producing, with the obvious exception of those that we've talked about that have decided to, uh, you know, fold their tents permanently, it, I don't know. I, I feel like my dance card's getting pretty full. How about you, Jonathan? <laughs> well, yes, my dance card is very full, meaning that, you know, 30 days has September and November, <laughs> and uh, October and December have 31, but there are more than 30 or 31 openings in the month, so that we could be going to something every night of of, of the week, every week of the month, and not see everything. At the same time, it is not quite quite up to what it used to be. I remember pre-pandemic, pre-shutdown, a typical theater month in Chicago had a, a good 50 different productions opening. And that didn't count, you know, short runs, things that came in for like one of the downtown theaters just for a week or even a couple of nights. Uh, those were runs of several weeks to, uh, to several months. Uh, we're not quite back at that level, but we are you know, in the area of probably 35 to 40 openings each month, um, at least uh, through December. And um, we are certainly going to be back up come late November, December. Those of you who love holiday shows, we certainly are going to be back up to full strength with holiday season fair. Uh, Carrie, uh, Carrie and I are not going to cover any of that today, but we will closer to the holidays there there will be there will be you know nutcrackers and christmas carols galore <laughs> <laughs> and understandably so but that's not for today <laughs> so let's uh let's dive into your lists and we're going to start with plays and carrie you want to 
talk about uh, two productions that both come from the same playwright. Yes, Indy Craig Galvin was a sketch performer, well, still is, uh, but maybe perhaps known to people who went to Second City back, you know, a few years ago, but she's been living in L.A. She is back with two plays, uh, two different plays, both set in Chicago, uh, and both are open now. Uh, well, actually, one will be opening a little later this week, but uh, the first one is A Hit Dog Will Holler, set in Hyde Park, and it follows a woman who is a sort of social media influencer activist who is also agoraphobic, uh, who is visited by a more boots-on-the-ground activist for what promises to be a very lively debate about the meaning of you know direct action, what does it mean to be an activist, what does it mean to be a black woman, carrying the weight of the demands that you be an activist and that you be out in your community. Um, then she also has a play that's kind of a being uh, produced by Congo Square Theater. Uh, Artemisia is producing a hit dog will holler, by the way, and that is at the Den Theater. And then Welcome to Madison is Madison, I should say, not Madison, the capital of Wisconsin, but Madison, <laughs> the right. south suburb. This is a comedy that unfolds in real time, sort of a, a, a biting comedy as two different black couples have a dinner party. One couple has been fairly well situated in the suburb for a while. The other has just relocated there since they were kind of displaced by the closing of the Cabrini Green housing projects. And it really promises to be about what, what class means within the black community, what housing justice means. Um, So she's tackling some really big meaty issues but she is also a comic performer and a comic writer. She's been writing in L.A. for quite some time. I think it's great that both these plays are coming back. Uh, Congo Square is produ- producing Welcome to Matson. They're going to be doing that at Abbott Hall in uh, Northwestern's downtown campus. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to both of these. And I, I don't know that they planned it this way, but we have the happy uh, occasion of having a little min- a little mini Indefest, I'm calling it. <laughs> Her work has been produced around the country since she left. Um, Chicago, but it's great that she's able to come back with these two very Chicago-centric stories. Sounds good. Jonathan, what's next on your list? Okay, well, my next pick is at Northlight Theater uh, in uh, Skokie, Illinois, very, very well. This is, I think, the 47th season, something like that. Been around a long time. (laughs) And they are doing the Chicago premiere of a play called Birthday Candles. And I've never seen it, I've never read it, but it's by a playwright I've always found to be not only a good playwright, but a very, very interesting and thoughtful playwright, and that's Noah Hadel. And uh, Birthday Candles is, uh, is, is, it focuses on one woman, and when we first meet her, it is her birthday, and she's a teenager, 14 or 15 years old, and the play takes her through a sequence of birthdays through middle age and beyond. So Birthday Candles by Noah Hadle being done at Northlight, and um, uh, it begins previews uh, at the end of this week, September 7th, and runs until October 8th. Uh, Another pick is a play called The Pragmatist, being done by the very small uh, uh, off-loop theater company, Trapdoor, over in kind of the the Bucktown area. Trapdoor's been around for many, many years, and they specialize in doing little, if ever seen, plays by Eastern European playwrights, mostly Eastern European. And uh, The Pragmatist is a translation of a work by the great Polish playwright uh, Vietkiewicz, Vietkiewicz, and it's being directed (laughs) by... Easy for you to say. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
tried a couple of times, it gets easier. Vietkiewicz. Uh, <laughs> and it's being directed by uh, uh, Jelko Dukac, who was uh, well-known in Chicago for many years as a director and teacher, and uh, returned a couple of years ago to his native Serbia, and is coming back as a guest artist to direct The Pragmatist. So I want to see what Jelko Dukic does with the play by Vietkiewicz, The Pragmatist, at Trapdoor. It opens on the 21st of September and runs to the 28th of October. Carrie, let's flip it back well, to I'm, you. I won't, yeah, even let, I won't even let Gary get a word in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have two plays uh, that both have connections to a Red Orchid Theater. One is literally being done at a Red Orchid Theater. That's Revolution, which is opening September 7th. It's by Chicago playwright Brett Neveu, who has been a company member there and seems to get something produced there almost every year. He is definitely one of our more prolific scribes. He's also the uh, local, you know, captain for the uh, Writers Guild strike. So you may have seen him in media, you know, out there on the picket lines. Well, that's been going on. But he is returning to his artistic home at a Red Orchid Theater with Revolution, which is also starring the longtime Red Orchid Ensemble member, to me one of the absolute indispensables of Chicago theater, Natalie West. Now, I can't say I know exactly what the story involves, and with Brett, there's always lots of twists and turns. But I'll read just the description that the company is kind of uh, teasing us with. Who celebrates their 26th birthday in the alley? Huff, that's who. With the help of her best friend Jane and the unlikely company of Georgia, Puff rings in her new year with laughter, connection, a dose of danger, and Miller High Life. So there you go. I'm intrigued by that. <laughs> uh, I, I've never found Brett's work to be anything less than really interesting, even if I've never, even if there are times when I've felt it haven't fully lived up to what the premise might be. He's definitely an original, uh, a very original voice, and I'm quite excited to see this. Now, one of the other Red Orchid uh, regulars, Dado, the wonderful director, who I think has also worked at, uh, I believe has worked at Trapdoor in the past, so I may be wrong on that, is doing a show at a new theater called The Facility, which is in Humboldt Park. She's, they've been hosting various developmental readings and things there, and they're doing a full run of a show called Right Now by French-Canadian actor and writer Catherine Anne Topin, directed by Dado. And this also sounds a little bit uh, a little bit odd, a little bit claustrophobic. Um, the story, as I understand it, involves a young couple that move into an apartment building, and uh, the woman, the wife, Alice, deals with mysterious and persistent neighbors next door, struggles to keep a grasp on what is left of her shattered reality. Now, I don't know. Maybe there is something about plays that deal with a little bit of agoraphobia you know, coming out of all of us being in, you know, a few years ago being in sort of enforced solitude. Maybe this is something new that theaters are really tapping into as a result of that zeitgeist. But whatever it is, I'm, I'm curious to see how it facility theater does, run by longtime Fringe director and actor Kirk Anderson. Uh, he set up this place. He's giving. He's turning it into a playground for interesting work, and um, you know it's in Humboldt Park, and it's a nice addition to the cultural life there. So I'm I'm looking forward to that as well. And as I said, both of the, if you're fans of Red Orchid, you know these are shows that have, seem to have uh, kind of in that same DNA of what you might expect from from that company. If you're just joining us, you're tuned into WDCB. This is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm here with the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. We're in the midst of our fall theater preview. Jonathan, what's next on your list? Well, my next choice, and I suspect, Carrie, that this is on your list, too, but my next cho- next choice is, is one of the most highly anticipated uh, 
theater productions, uh, I, I would say, of the year, even though we're only talking about the fall, and that's the Chicago premiere of the Lehman Trilogy, being produced by Timeline Theater Company downtown at the Broadway Playhouse in Water Tower Place. It begins preview September 19th and runs to the end of October. The Lehman Trilogy is, uh, you see it all in one evening, even though it's called a trilogy. Each section runs about an hour. Uh, the Lehman Trilogy is an epic story about the rise and fall of the Lehman Brothers brokerage house in New York, and the collapse of which in 2007-2008 really triggered the global economic meltdown when the subprime mortgage market collapsed. The Lehman Trilogy covers over 160 years, from the arrival in New York City of the German immigrant who founded the Lehman Brothers Company and his sons, and then their family, their, the next generation, who took over the Lehman Brothers brokerage house. So this is an epic, not only an epic uh, business story, an American and an international business story, but also an epic family story. The Lehman Trilogy being produced by Timeline downtown at the Broadway Playhouse from September 19th uh, until October 29th. Uh, so that's one of my big, big pits, picks. My next one, too, I suspect, Carrie, is on your list because it's a favorite company of yours, and that's Albany Park Theater Project, which is doing a world premiere piece about the immigrant experience in Chicago mm -hmm. called Port of Entry. Yes, Port of Entry, and it uh, it begins performances October fifth and runs uh, has a good long run runs till right. December sixteenth. Right. You uh, is this on your list? You want to make? A, I already saw it yeah. this summer. It opened earlier this summer. The thing about oh. the show is that it's limited to twenty eight participants a night, so you sort of go through these recreations of apartments, which look very very similar to real Chicago apartments, right down to the back porches. And you see a couple, you see all the stories of the different families that live there. A Filipino family, um, a family, uh, from, from Myanmar, what we used to call Burma. And, and we are invited to participate in some of their rituals. We hear bits and pieces as we go through. Um, so, you know, you're separated. So not everybody's getting the same stories at the same time. It is, I would highly recommend it. Just a really fascinating and unique show. Do try to get tickets quickly because the small size of the audience uh, means that they'll be they'll be filling up quickly. But my understanding is they plan to be running this for a good long time, and there is actually a chance they will be moving in other kinds of stories that they may switch them up. Because as you and I have talked about, I think on the show before, Jonathan Albany Park Theater Project does such wonderful ethnographic theater work with their young artists and collecting the stories of their families and of their neighborhoods and of the various ethnic communities. And so those are all going to be, I think, woven in over the next couple of years. So. I wonder if, if the immigrant stories, you know, the, the, the faces change, but I wonder if the, the root stories themselves really are different in, in, in 2023 than they were in 1923 well, it's, it's, or 1883, a, yeah. except for then it would be the Jewish immigrants and the well, Irish exactly. and the and Italian I, immigrants. I will, I will say this at the very beginning of Port of Entry, because inside this old storage building that they've transformed for the piece, there's like the gateway into the courtyard, 
And the first thing we see is sort of a silent moment where various families come in. And you do see the Orthodox Jewish family. You see some of other, you know, Eastern European families. And then eventually you're getting more to the Latin American and the Filipino and the, and the Asian immigrant families. Um, so, yes, I think that they themselves would probably say there, there's definitely that connective tissue. And I think that's one of the things that they're really hoping to bring out in this. It's a very, very special show, and I'm so glad it's on your list. And just a a quick note on on Port of Entry, because I did a a piece on the production a few weeks ago, and at that point, they were booked up all the way through December already, uh, because there's such a small amount of people that are able to to go through it at one time. Um, They might have added some more performances between now and December. Also, I I believe they've opened up the window from December and beyond, but I would recommend uh, reserving your, your tickets as soon as possible, Though the good news is, is uh, as Carrie mentioned, this is something that's probably going to be around for a while. Yeah, they they put a good amount of money into transforming this space. So I'd be very surprised if they didn't keep it up for for as long as they possibly can. So, so I think we're at a, a good place to end part one of our fall theater preview. We'll continue it next week. Carrie and Jonathan will preview some musicals and a couple theater festivals that are coming up over the next few months. So come back next week for part two of our fall theater preview. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Carrie. You're welcome. Thank you both. We'll talk next week. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. The Harris Theater for Music and Dance is celebrating a milestone anniversary this year. The loop-based venue opened in 2003 with a mission to fill a void in Chicago's downtown cultural landscape. The theater is kicking off its 20th anniversary season with a special all-day event on Saturday, September 9th called Harris Fest, Music and Dance in the Park. We are going to do a Millennium Park takeover with all of our resident companies performing. We'll have activations all during the day um, and a culminating performance on the J. Pritzker Pavilion stage that evening. So it's September 9th. We're doing a, a massive Millennium Park takeover to celebrate all of the local companies that call the Harris home. This is Harris Theater President and CEO Lori Diamond. The Harris originally opened with 12 resident companies. Today there are 30 and each one will be participating in Harris Fest. We're actually going to have all of the resident companies as well as our community partners will have um, kind of tables, information about the work that they do. Um, There'll be performances in the tent. We'll have pop-up performances out on the Great Lawn and some workshops. We're kicking off the day with a drum circle with Muntu Dance Theater. So there'll be ways to engage throughout the entire day. And then again, there'll be a, a, a full culminating performance that will happen that evening. So what was the the programming process like for putting something like this together? Did the Harris take lead or was it more reaching out to individual companies to see how they wanted to participate? Yes, so we've been talking for a number of years now about the idea of doing a showcase. So the very first performance that ever happened at the Harris on November 8th of 2003 was a celebration of, at the time, the 12 founding companies. And over the years, you know, we've, we continue to meet with those companies on a regular basis. They help inform all the things that we do and the way we operate our building and the venue that they call home. And they've talked a lot about the idea of what it would be like to come together and do 
something together. Obviously, we've grown from 12 companies now to having close to 30. And so we knew that it was going to have to be bigger than just one single performance, maybe on the Harris Theater stage. And so each of the companies came to us to pick something that they really wanted to feature on this broader stage, something that would really speak to these multiple audiences that each of these companies has. And so we did a lot of saying yes. We said, Let's do what you want to do. And so the whole experience really has been curated collectively by all the organizations. What's going to happen on the Pritzker Pavilion stage, can you share? Is that going to be companies working together or individual performances? Primarily, it's individual performances. We, again, we want to uplift and amplify what happens at the Harris um, throughout the entire year. So we've been saying, you know, 365 days a year, these companies are here performing on our stage. Let's you know, put this in collective out on the Pritzker Pavilion stage. So you will see a lot of the companies doing kind of their showcase work. There are a couple of overlap surprises that, that you'll see throughout the evening, um, but primarily it's them really putting their best foot forward. I'm very excited for our performance at Harris Fest. This is Terrell Johnson, executive director of Chicago Philharmonic, one of the resident companies set to perform at Harris Fest. Not only is it a celebration of our nine-year partnership with this venue and and calling this our home, um, but it's also a very exciting opportunity for us to um, premiere uh, our new artist in residence. This will be our first artist in residence for the Chicago Philharmonic. Uh, Jill McGrievous, who is a fantastic violinist, will be performing Samuel Col- Coleridge Taylor's Violin Concerto, as well as we're welcoming um, for the other p- portion of the performance a local artist, Sleeping at Last. We're going to play several um, brand new arrangements of his music uh, with orchestra. And this is very exciting for us. This is also kind of a sneak peek for our 35th season, which will be in 2024-25, where those two hours will join us for a larger programs at the Harris. Also taking the Pritzker Pavilion stage at Harris Fest is the acclaimed Hubbard Street Dance. We'll be performing Coltrane's Favorite Things by choreographer Lar Lubavitch, who is also a native Chicagoan. This is Linda Denise Fisher-Harrell artistic director of Hubbard Street Dance. And it's pure dance. The dancers are moving nonstop. It's the entire track of John Coltrane's favorite things, and it's just something that's just going to move the hearts and spirits of the audience. Was that your call to pick that piece for this? It was. It's fitting. It celebrates the Harris. It celebrates Lar Lubavitch, who's done so many things for the city of Chicago and for dance. And to celebrate the beautiful dancers of Hubbard Street Dance Chicago, which, you know, are undeniable, you know, as the premier contemporary dance company of Chicago. Hubbard Street was among the original 12 resident companies that performed at the Harris Theater when it opened in the fall of 2003. Fisher Harrell says the space is phenomenal for dance performances. There's so many reasons why why the Harris is perfect. First of all, it's state of the art, right? So it's almost all the bells and whistles and things to play with um, when you're talking about the creation of work. So when our choreographers come in and they are staging their pieces, they can really see a completed vision um, of what they put in. And also for our dancers, you know, all the space that they have on the stage, the sight lines of the stage, you know, the dressing rooms, all the things are wonderful. And as, as far as the audience goes, is almost no bad seats in the Harris Theater. So, so the experience that the audience gets at the Harris is second to none. 
Sound quality is something that's incredibly important to the music groups like Chicago Philharmonic that perform at the Harris. I think it's a really great fit because of, not only because of the the size, I think it's, it's a really great size for some of the programs we specifically are looking to present downtown, but also um, the acoustics are really terrific. You can tell that that was a big consideration when building the space was to make sure that uh, since it's a home for music and dance, that the music side, we obviously were well-equipped with a space that really sounds fantastic live. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. I'm taking a closer look at the Harris Theater, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary this season. I caught up with Harris Theater president and CEO Lori Diamond backstage at the venue. Is there an ideal size of a company that's right for the Harris? I think what's unique about our space and what was our founders were really mindful of in those early development plans was that the Harris is a space that you can also grow into and and grow with. And so we have companies that for them a very successful performance may be that they moved from a 400 seat space into the Harris Theater, into a mid-sized performing arts theater. So their first performance here may have 600 people. And that is defined as success for that company because they grew. And so I think for us, Finding those companies that really have have excelled to a point in which their artistry needs the size and capacity of our stage, the accommodations that we have in our in our technical offerings, our lighting, our sound. Um, I think we fit a lot of companies that are what would be considered mid-size, um, and especially those contemporary music and dance organizations. So I, I think of dance companies, but there are also music organizations that are considered resident companies. Yes, so actually a number of our founding companies and companies that still perform with us are music companies. So Chicago Opera Theater has was one of our earliest founding companies um, and is still very active. And again, I think our space really resonates with the type of programming that they're doing. Um, and the, the scale really works beautifully with what they do. Music of the Broke is one of our resident companies and they, they also perform in the North Shore, but we are their downtown Chicago home. And it really, for that early music, the acoustics in the hall are really impeccable. Gaiman's Chorus is one of our resident companies. Um, Uniting Voices Chicago, formerly Chicago Children's Choir. Um, Chicago Philharmonic is one of our um, loyal resident companies as well. So lots of great music organizations that we work with. The upcoming Harris Fest is also an opportunity for Diamond to reflect on the theater's first two decades. I haven't been here for the full two decades, but I've, I've been here quite quite a long time, and I, I do have so much pride, you know, especially coming through the pandemic that we all came through together. Um, I have so much pride in the work that we do. I am so grateful to have this community of collective arts leaders. Our resident company leadership is tremendous. Their artistic leadership, their executive leadership, their teams. And for us to have these colleagues, both as resources, as sounding boards, as collaborative partners, it's really something special. And I think I have a lot of gratitude in these 20 years of the way that we've built those foundational relationships that are really helping us sustain into our future. And I think it's helping all of our organizations be stronger working together. The first ever Harris Fest is set to take place Saturday, September 9th from 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. at Millennium Park, which is right next door to the Harris Theater. We hope the day for Chicagoans that it sparks their cultural curiosity. I think 
you know, so many of our individual companies have their audience and have a fan base. And we hope that, you know, by people coming out and supporting maybe a group that they are already fond of or have a relationship with, that they may see something that really inspires them, that excites them and reminds them that there's so much incredible art that's coming out of Chicago and Chicago artists are putting out there. So we're hoping that it inspires people to come back and try something new throughout the rest of the year and to get to know other companies that they maybe weren't so familiar with. That was Lori Diamond. She's the president and CEO of the Harris Theater for Music and Dance. You can learn more about Harris Fest and the theater's upcoming season at harristheaterchicago.org. This is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. The Museum of Contemporary Art wants to shine a brighter light on Chicago performance artists. The second ever Chicago Performs is set to take place September 7th through the 10th. The Intimate Performing Arts Festival aims to support artists who are entering a new phase of their practice. After a successful launch last year, the program is back for year two with a group of new artists ready to present innovative work. I recently caught up with MCA Curatorial Associate Laura Page Kyber to talk about the works in this year's Chicago Performs. Each of the projects in last year's festival, I think, had some relationship to the idea of joy, whether it was just joyous to be back in the space together, joyous to be gathering in a moment of performance, or, or even questioning joy as a sort of, I suppose, strategy towards um, freedom or healing. This year, I would say the works in the festival are really a moment to take pause, a moment of meditation in various aspects. But the series is not necessarily meant to be centered on a specific theme. Really, our goal here is to spotlight the performance makers here in Chicago on a platform um, the stage the size of ours here at the MCA and to provide an opportunity for our national colleagues to come here and start to form relationships um, with the artists here in Chicago. Yeah, that was one of my questions. If during the curation, if, if there was like a, a theme or it's really the, the focus is on the individual artists and sometimes maybe a theme just emerges? I would say it's both of those. You know, I think that our process is that we start in individual conversations with artists about their work and what they're thinking about. Um, and we think through who is ready at this phase in their career for a, a presentation of this kind. It's uh, meant to focus on artists who are entering a new phase of their practice and that can mean a lot of things whether it's performing on a stage as large as ours for the first time, maybe they're exploring new directions in their practice, new ideas in the work, new uh, disciplines, incorporating new disciplines into their work. Maybe they're expanding the scale of what they do or reimagining an older work in a new type of space. And then as far as like genre, the type of performance, is there any criteria? It could be dance or theater? Yeah, absolutely. So here at the MCA, we want to represent all genres of performance, whether it be dance, theater, or music. 
everywhere there in between all of the interdisciplinary types of performance that there are. This year we have solo dance artist choreographer. We have more of a performance art maker who comes from a photography background originally and then we'll also have another more site-specific type performance that will rove throughout the public spaces of the museum um, in sort of a silent movement-based way. And we can use that as a, a segue to talk about this year's Chicago Performs and I think that last one you were talking about that's the the piece or the program's titled Blue Alice. Yep, that's by Irene Xiao, who is also, um, she's a dance maker, and she also is a prolific writer about performance for the city of Chicago. You can find her work in New City, for example, in the Chicago Reader. But in this case, she'll be performing her own work. Uh, indeed, it's called Blue Alice, and it is a fabulous character um, situated inside of an enormous dress made out of tarp, blue tarp and silver mylar and she uses it to create various sculptural shapes throughout the space and frequently it's in relation to uh, the works on view and the gallery spaces where she performs. So she'll be crafting her performance around the exhibitions we have here at the moment which are our Gary Simmons show and Entre Horizontes which is a, a group show of Puerto Rican artists and you can see her in all of the museum's various spaces outside on our terrace and our atrium and up the stairwells and beyond. So how does the audience interact with something like that? Do they follow her? Yeah, so it's durational. It'll take place over the course of uh, an hour and a half to two hours during museum open hours. And so, yes, yeah, some audiences will just be here visiting the museum when they happen upon her performance. Others will come specifically to see the show. Um, there's no right way of doing it. And I think that your question points exactly to what she's thinking about in the work. She wants us to think about our typical norms of viewing artwork, whether it's object-based or live art. Because of the sculptural nature of her dress, sometimes she really acts like a sculpture, a human sculpture, for example. And in spaces like ours at the museum, where viewers aren't supposed to touch works of art, she's really inviting us to pause and, and think about how we look at art and how we interact with it. The mylar, is that like a reflective, she'll be able to like reflect off some of the pieces? Yeah, it's a um, reflective material. It's sort of like a, a very shiny silver um, aluminum foil type material. It's quite loud. Blue Alice wears headphones while she performs and makes the sound of sort of like an ocean maybe. Um, very, It's a very crackly material. You can definitely hear Blue Alice before you see her, maybe. Okay. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. I'm talking with the Museum of Contemporary Arts' Laura Page Kyber about the museum's performing arts showcase, Chicago Performs. Interdisciplinary artist Jonas Becker is presenting a piece titled New Normal. Jonas is on faculty at SAIC uh, working in film and photography and is shifting this project into the world of performance to um, expand on ideas related to 
uh, how the body is impacted by slow change in societal, social, and political conditions. Jonas and I had a really lovely conversation a few weeks ago about the genesis of the project being first starting with a photography series that he was doing that looked at large-scale mining operations. Jonas comes from West Virginia originally and is looking at how those projects impact the land of Appalachia. And eventually Jonas was thinking about how the land and the body cannot be separated, you know, how we consume air and water, to what extent our surroundings impact what we're made up of. And I think from that impulse really wanted to move those ideas to manifest them in performance with actual bodies. Will that take place in a more traditional theater setting? Yeah, the work actually has existed in public space in the past. Um, Initially, we presented uh, an iteration of Jonas's project. It's called New Normal in 2019 as a part of the MCA's In Progress series. And now they've expanded and, you know, evolved the work to take place on our stage space. So it'll be seen in a different environment with a different seating arrangement, which will necessarily shift how how it reads to audiences, so it'll be exciting to see how it's evolved from that initial presentation. So that would be an example of like something that was in development, but now is like ready for a, a bigger audience. You mentioned change at the beginning. Yeah, I think so. A bigger audience, a different audience. I don't want to um, say that one type of presentation is necessarily better than the other, but I think it's an opportunity for the life of the work to exist in a new shape, certainly. And then listeners might notice that we just talked about two. The plan was to to have three, but because of uh, uncontrollable circumstances, the third performance is being postponed. Yeah, indeed. Um, So each year we try to support at least three local performance makers in the series, and the third in this year's series was Anjal Chanda, who is a dance maker and combines her training in traditional Bharatanatyam Indian dance with um, more contemporary dance styles and she created a solo called The Next Cup of Tea which is um, it combines movement and sound and personal narrative to explore ideas about how the narratives we tell ourselves about ourselves shape the identity that we present in the world more or less and um, yeah Unfortunately, it happens. Um, She has sustained a a foot injury, and so we've had to postpone the performance for a later date. This is very late-breaking news. Um, But yeah, um, part, part what I would say about it is Chicago Performs is supported by a funding program here at the museum called the New Works Initiative, which supports both the presentation of new work, but also the process of developing new work. And the life of a performance is long, and what you see on the stage is just a brief moment in the arc of that. And so I'm really proud of what we've been able to do with Angel to support the development of the work, and sad that we won't get to see it this weekend, but I'm excited that eventually we will in the future. I know you can't speak for the artist, but from I guess from your perspective, how does participating in something like this Chicago performs, how does that help them? Yeah, I mean, for one thing, I think it really positions the city of Chicago as a 
sort of cultural hub epicenter for uh, creative practice in here in in the United States and um, part of what we do through the New Works Initiative is support our nationwide colleagues to come into town and spend time seeing the work and getting to know the artists. So hopefully they'll be able to start some relationships of their own with our presenter colleagues as well. There's also a tremendous amount of interest locally in the project. All the performances in last year's Chicago Performs sold out. I just talked about what it means kind of on a national level, but what it means on a local level is that maybe you have seen some of these artists in a self-produced capacity in much smaller venues, um, but here it's also really a moment for them to shine in an institution with institutional support and on a stage the size of ours, and it's so exciting to see the local community come out in support of their friends and colleagues on our stage. And so I know the focus is on this year's program, but is the plan to make this like an annual thing? Yeah, we hope to make it an annual thing. Um, like I said, it's just our second time around, and so far we've only been able to support three artists each time. But we would love to grow the program in the future, include more projects, and maybe even make it a neighborhood-wide festival in multiple venues surrounding the MCA. That's Laura Page Kyber. She's a curatorial associate at the Museum of Contemporary Art. The second ever Chicago Performs will take place Thursday, September 7th through Sunday the 11th at the MCA. You can find out more details by visiting mcachicago.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Hope you get to enjoy your Labor Day, maybe some time off. Enjoy the last gasps of summer. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 